Hello and welcome back to Voices Unheard. My name is Marcus and in today's episode we're talking about money. Most people have an idea of how money works in the not-for-profit sector. They believe that you donate to an organisation and then that organisation will use that money to either build infrastructure such as wells and schools or provide medical supplies, research medical treatment for diseases or provide emergency relief to communities affected by events such as natural disasters. All those uses of money fall into the category of having a single use. The organisation spends it on something that will help the people who it's intended to help. But there's also another way for money to be spent in international development, where it isn't just spent once. The money can be recycled or reused, increasing the number of people that the money can have an impact on. A bit more on how that works later. In this episode, I spoke to Kyron Johnson, who works with Opportunity International Australia as the state manager. Yeah, I'm Kyron Johnson. I'm the state manager for Western Australia and South Australia for Opportunity International Australia. I've been doing this role for over four and a half, nearly we're getting close to five years now, um, connecting with our supporters here in WA and SA, engaging people in their philanthropic giving in the work that we are doing on the ground overseas. Kyron is fantastic in the space of international aid and development. He's known by his nickname, The Generosity Guy. When I started work putting together this podcast and working out who to interview, someone mentioned Kyron. And when getting in touch, I realized that Kyron and I had actually met before, but it was years ago when I was just 14 years old. And Kyron was visiting high schools to share about the work of World Vision. And some of our conversations were quite formative and guiding me towards my own personal fascination with international development and aid. I wanted to ask Kyron how we got into the area of international aid and development. As a 16-year-old, I saw the movie The Power of One, which was based on the, the Bryce Courtney book, the, the Power of One, which I then subsequently read. Um, and I just was overwhelmed by injustice and saw the reality of what that looks like. And, and something stirred within me of like, oh, that's, that's not fair. There has to be something that I can do about that. And then sort of sat with that for a, for a number of years. Um, and then... I don't know, the journey took me to a place where I was working for World Vision. I got a job working for World Vision for a, for a few years as um, someone working in the 40-hour famine and engaging young people. And so that was kind of the next development, sort of taking me to that next step into, cool, now I'm not just sponsoring a child, now I'm actually engaging people in the fight against poverty and what we can do about it. And learning through my years at World Vision what development looked like and then doing some more study around that, and that kind of led me to where I am now at Opportunity. How does Opportunity International work as an organisation to provide aid? Yeah, so we're ending poverty one family and one community at a time through the power of a small loan. We provide essentially small business loans. And when I talk about small, it's the equivalent of $100 can create a small loan for someone. They will take that. They will either start a business or um, just put some capital into a, a business that they kind of already got running. Um, they create an income, they put food on the table, they send their kids to school, they pay the loan back and work their way to poverty from there. It's an empowerment model. And the businesses these people are involved in are things like um, they might buy a sewing machine and you know, create some uh, clothing, you know, make some clothing for the people in their community. They might um, buy some fruit and vegetables and they'll have a little cart that they'll take around and sell that to people in their community. They might have a roadside stall and you know, it's just a little mat on the side of a road and they'll sell some items. Um, the most basic model I heard was in India um, where a woman, she bought a dozen eggs for two rupee 
and then two, two rupee each and then boiled them and sold them for five rupee. So I just had this incredible business model to start with um, and started making income. So it's just the simple things that we can provide people to help them work their own way out of poverty. can be six months, but yeah, 12 months is the average. Uh, and so that... What they do is they'll meet together in groups of, of women, like 95% of our clients are women, so they'll meet together in groups maybe once a week or once a fortnight, make a repayment, um, receive some training, and create a bit of a community around business as well, sort of that network, um, and that's that's a huge part of the process for them uh, to to make those repayments, pay the loan off, uh, off over a period of time, and make connections with people in their community. You mentioned that most of the loans given by Opportunity go to women. Why is that? There's a few different reasons. There's um, anecdotal evidence and also legitimate evidence from studies that money in the hands of a woman, especially in a developing country, is so much more powerful. She is 70% more likely to spend that on her family and her kids. Um, And so the majority of the money that she makes will go to the household, making sure that the children have school uniforms, you know, food, Um, books for school, all of that kind of thing. So it'll go to the kids. So it's really about the next generation. They're shaped differently. They are uh, focused on their kids and want to look after their kids more in in a different way than than men do. Uh, At the same time, in countries like India and Indonesia, where we're specifically focused, um, in India especially, women are in the home more often. Uh, So they're not necessarily going out. They are at home with the kids and almost confined there. And so they have, dare I say, they have time and ability to create a business, to create another source of income, especially if their their husband has gone to look for work or if he's left or he died. Like there's a lot of women who are trying to fend for themselves. And so this is a really effective way they can start a business from home. They can do all the things that they need to do as well as create an income and look after their kids. Um, yeah, I think that's a really powerful model just to engage and empower the household. If you can empower a woman in the community to become a community leader, that is going to be a significant change. You know, we've got half of the global population, the majority of them are disempowered at the moment um, in different countries. We're missing out as a world. So if we can empower them and get um, get them to a place where they can lead and come up with creative ideas and just engage others around them, then we're going to be in a much better position as a world. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that we usually have a perception that money used in the not-for-profit industry has a one-off use. However, with the business model of Opportunity International, money has an amazing way of being multiplied. So for me, it is, um, it's a longer-term sustainable plan. Whereas, you know, somebody, if you provide a loan for someone that they're going to repay it back, once they pay it back, we can then lend it out to the next person. So there's this recycling effect that happens. And so we've, you know, people have donated money to Opportunity International Australia maybe five, ten years ago, and that money is still being lent out and recycled and lent out and recycled. We've got a 98% repayment rate. So it's, it's a significant way. Uh, it's not just throwing money at a thing that gets spent and it disappears. Um, it is this ongoing sustainability, which I think uh, puts microfinance in a really positive uh, place to empower people. You know, we're trying to create um, the next generation of entrepreneurs who are going to come up with great ideas uh, and find a way to provide food for their family and improve their lifestyle and improve their health. And the ability to do that is... It comes from the ingenuity of, of the person uh, and this 
the way that they can be empowered actually gives them the ability to um, have some dignity in their life and some integrity and actually create the psychological impact of working out of poverty. And that may sound really weird, but I, I see poverty not only as a financial um, and social uh, issue, it's also a psychological issue. If you are living in poverty, then you only know poverty. And we know that people who are living in poverty actually have a lower IQ because they are actually stressing so much about money that they can't think about other things. It's not as if they're, it's not, they're not dumber. They have a lower IQ because their ability to think about tomorrow is diminished because they can only think about today. And so that has an ongoing psychological impact. If you can actually create an environment where someone can become a business person, they become a member of their community who can give back, um, look after their family, even hire their neighbours, that has a huge impact on the way that they think, the way that they approach the world psychologically. So they can then step into becoming someone significant who they are designed to be and lead others around them. And that is a... That's a change that we can't measure yet, but that's a change that has a huge impact on their community. One of the issues surrounding poverty that rarely gets discussed is the psychological and emotional impact of poverty. The perception of poverty is that it's something that is just a lack of money or material goods such as food, water, clean clothes or shelter. Whilst that is true, it's just one aspect of poverty that doesn't take into account the mindset that gets formed inside you when you lack those material things. In an earlier episode with Richmond Wandera, who grew up as a boy in the slums of Uganda, he talks about how poverty is a, a monster that tells you that you are worthless, you deserve the situation you're in, and that you should just give up on your dreams. And that's what I love about the work of Opportunity International, is it's not just a handout of money, but it's a loan to get people to start thinking like an entrepreneur, giving them the resources they need to dream. I think what I've seen as well, like you know, when people first start the process, of taking a loan. You think in places like India, it's a very patriarchal society and so women are often second-rate citizens. And so when they first get involved with a group, they're you know, timid, they don't necessarily talk up very much, uh, they're unsure, they're uncertain, they're, they're afraid. Uh, and if they you know, go through the process of taking a loan and repaying back, they might take another one and repay that back. And after a few loan cycles, you see these women who are almost boisterous you know they're they're confident they're excited they're um they're vocal they ask for what they want and they will get what they want because they're looking after their kids so it's just a completely different person uh, than the person who first arrived and that that's what excites me is the the ability for people to become what they could be it's almost like a, a potential of what they could be and then stepping into that in your time with Opportunity International, you've been able to travel and visit countries that Opportunity operates in. What have been your experiences out in the field? Well, I can talk to you about the slums of India that I've seen. I was in, in Delhi, uh, it was a couple of years ago now, um, and we just kind of journeyed through as a group looked uh, into the slums. Tried to We went to meet some Opportunity clients, but on our way to get there, the general household of someone living in this sort of environment that doesn't have the ability to create a business or grow a business, um, it's, some, it's a subsist, subsistence kind of experience. Like it's the whole focus is trying to find a meal. They might have one meal a day, maybe two, um, but they're not getting enough to eat. Their healthcare is non-existent. And so if somebody gets sick, then that is 
potentially going to wipe out any meagre savings that they have. We're talking about people living in poverty who are, um, depending on the, the levels that the UN are currently putting on it, but you know, $2 a day is um, standard for someone living in extreme poverty. But they don't earn $2 a day. They might find some work on day 10, for example, and maybe make $10. Um, and then they might find work three days later and make another $10. So they've made $20 in kind of 13 days, but they don't know when they're going to find work again. And so they're going to have to, they can't just budget and spend it all on a thing and make sure they've got food shopping done for this week. Like they, there's emergency needs right, right in front of them. So they can't plan ahead. Um, and so the lack of food, the lack of, um, uh, you know, income which is sustainable or um, recogn- uh, acknowledged. Um, and then getting kids in school is, is a challenge. Uh, you know, things like they actually do need books. They might not cost them much to get to school, but they need books to write in. Um, and if they can't afford that, then the, the kids won't be allowed to go to school. Um, and then if, as especially girls, as they get older into teenage years and they start going through puberty, if the schools don't actually have proper facilities, they're not going to go you know, a couple of days, maybe three or four days a month, so they're missing out on schooling. Um, so there's a whole lot of components at play. There might be a festival that'll come up at a particular time of year, and they actually need to uh, have money to buy a particular item for a festival so they can engage and be part of their community. It sounds a bit strange to us, but that's just a, a, a natural occurrence that uh, happens in a lot of these countries. So they will f- find somewhere to get a loan from, uh, maybe a family member. Worst case scenario, it's a loan shark, you know, someone who will charge them... Maybe, what is that, 20% a day? Like they might borrow $4 in the morning and need to pay back $5 in the evening. Um, and if they can't do that, then they're in debt and that's going to keep escalating and they're going to find themselves who are um, almost in slavery to a loan shark because they are just trying to find money to pay back and get themselves back to zero. So a lot of the clients that we actually connect with, um, you know, that take a loan from Opportunity, the first thing they do is pay their debt. Because they're not starting at zero, they're starting at negative. And so they kind of, they use part of the loan to pay back, pay the debt, get rid of that, and then kind of use the rest of it to get their business up and running. I mean, all these countries, they have the extremes, right? Like you've got the absolute wealth of the country, which, you know, as white Australians, we go in and we, you know, kind of stay in hotels and experience the the best part that the country has to offer. Because that's just normal for us. That's just how we function. Um and then you go and, and visit, we were in uh, Manila, and there was a, a section of warehouses in Manila which are no longer in use, they're just slums. There's about 33, 34 of these warehouses where people just lived in abs- absolute poverty. Um, and there was rubbish everywhere, and the stench was extraordinary. And there was one section where they called uh, one of the, the warehouses, um, the, the people who stayed there, they called them the Lost Boys because it was um, just young kids young boys who didn't have any parents, were just kind of roaming around, finding ways to um, you know, find any sort of substance to get high off of, you know, whether it's glue, whether it's um, <clears throat> yeah, other fuel, whatever they could find. And these are kids that are teenagers, even younger. Um, and in amongst that, there was little girls as well. And so as a, a father of, you know, I'm a father of four and I've got two girls and two boys and to even have this possibility that there are young girls roaming around out there without anyone to look after them that are so vulnerable in an environment where there are boys who are getting high and just 
trying to find a way to get through the day. Um, I don't want to go into the details of what I think can happen sometimes, but it's just really not a safe and not a pleasant environment. And that was just really overwhelming. Um, on the flip side to that, we went to another community um, in a rural area in the Philippines and we met opportunity clients. And so these are people who have started a business and um, you know, a lot of them, they might have bought a little motorcycle that they will use as a taxi and kind of take people around. And there was a woman that I met who'd been through a number of loan cycles and she actually lived in a house um, and across the road was the slum that she used to live in so she kind of graduated which sounds again sounds funny that she worked her way out of the, this slum to, to live in a house but the reason she lived so close still was that she actually started up a whole lot of other businesses she had maybe three or four businesses that she ran um, that she funded from these loans over a period of time and she employed people from that slum there's real indication that when people work their way out of poverty they don't do it in isolation. They bring others with them. It's uh, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, all that kind of scenario. But people who work their way out of poverty, who've experienced it, give back to their community. Um, so that was you know those two extremes in the Philippines. Um, in India, similar. You know, you've got the these incredible extremes in India where those that are. Uh, you know, wealthy or middle class is a growing middle class in India at the moment. Uh, you know, across the road is just a whole whole slum that uh, the contradiction, the contrast is so um, so stark in places like Delhi. Uh, you know, I talked about the slums that we visited Delhi, in Delhi before, like the um, the extremity of poverty, the extremity of um, just the amount of people living in one area is overwhelming. Coming from Australia where we have what are we, 25 million people in this huge country? Like, we've got a lot of space. And so it, it can be difficult to, to comprehend what it's like to live in proximity to millions and millions and millions of people just in your local community. But there was, uh, there was a woman that I met. Uh, there's a, a city in the south of, of India. It's called Chennai. And about 80 kilometres out of there, we were in this kind of rural farming area. And we met with these opportunity clients and they all came together to meet us. It was it was wet season, it was flooded, and so we couldn't go to their homes, but they were able to come to us and meet us at a school which had closed because it was flooded. So I don't know how these women got from their homes to come and meet us, but there's 30 women sitting around and we just you know, interacted with them a bit. And there was one lady, she was, she was a character. She was... Um, and almost the, the life of the party. She was just so happy and joyful. Her name was Talaga. We found out that she was a tailor, and she said, "Come, come and see see my home and see where I work from." And I'm like, uh, and she showed us where she worked from in her home, this little room. She had a sewing machine, and she was the tailor for the local area. She made the clothes for the women who were farmers in the area. And she told us a story that um, when she first started out, she first was able to take a loan. She bought a sewing machine. It was a little pedal-powered machine. So she kind of, you know, would do the whole, I don't know, there's probably a great term for it, but, you know, we'd use her feet to kind of power the machine and, and make the clothes. Uh, she paid back that loan and went, great, now, now I can actually build on my business. I'm going to put in electricity into my home. 
So she found a way to get electricity into her home, used, used another loan for that, paid that back. And after she paid back her second loan, she took a third loan and actually bought a sewing machine which ran on electricity. Uh, so there was this long-term plan that you know took a couple of years for her to do, and finally she got to this point where she doesn't need to use pedal power anymore. She can use electricity. And she took so much joy uh, in clothing the women of her area. Uh, and it was just... It was incredible to be in that room and to see that sewing machine and to hear her journey and to see the smile on her face and to see the women who had gathered outside her home to hear her tell her story. Um, yeah, that was extraordinary. That just showed me the power of microfinance, the power of the entrepreneurial spirit, the power of uh, the work ethic and the ingenuity of people who are living in poverty but are making a, making a way for themselves to get out of it. You might hear that measure of extreme poverty being living on $2 a day quite often. It's definitely a fascinating measure and one used to talk about the accomplishment of raising people out of poverty. Quite often you hear the statistics like in 1990, 1 1.9 billion people lived on less than $2 a day. And now that number is just down to 734 million people living on less than $2 a day. Now that is fantastic that the number of people living on less than $2 a day has dropped from 1.9 billion to 734 million. But that doesn't mean that they're out of poverty. They've just passed a measurement line that we have made. Often we think that the measure of two US dollars a day is what I would be able to purchase if I converted two US dollars into a local currency in India or Uganda, for example. But that's actually not how the measure is used. Living on less than two US dollars a day is the equivalent of what two US dollars can buy in the United States. So it's basically nothing. For comparison, the poverty line in the United States is 15 US dollars a day. David Woodward, an economist that said if you were living on the international poverty line of two US dollars a day in Britain, for example, it would be like 35 people trying to live on a single minimum wage. So whilst it's great that so many people have moved above the two US dollars a day extreme poverty line, we still have so far to go. I wanted to ask Kyron, how had his experiences overseas shaped how he views life in Australia? I didn't do anything special to be born in Australia. That's just where I was born. And by default of where I was born, it's actually um, designated the kind of life that I've had. Now, I've had some great family and I've had some great opportunities that I've taken and actually done something with, but I've still been gifted a lot by being born in Australia, we've got an amazing country. We're a wealthy country. We've got education. We've got healthcare. Um, if I was born in India, if I was born in Indonesia, life would be different. Um, you know, there's a a phrase that I've been working around in my head: that geography is destiny. It shouldn't be, but it is. Like where you're born is is going to dictate what your life looks like. Now it's becoming less and less so because we're getting better as a world, but it's still the case. And so. Um, yeah, I, I take that as a sense of responsibility to change it um, and do what I can. I think it's the reality that it could be us. You know, we are blessed to be living in a place like Australia. For, for want of a, you know, T Tim Costello from World Vision would, would talk about the lottery of, of latitude. Um, and we won that lottery just by being born or living in Australia. And so the rest of the world is very different to the country that we live in. And, so, and understanding that, I think, is the challenge that we, we really need to come 
to grips with. It's it's hard to hard to articulate this well. But my sense is if we can find a way to have a little bit of empathy, if we could just put ourselves in the place of someone living in poverty and go, what would I do? How would I function? If everything was stripped back, if I did not have the ability to uh, have a house to live in, if I did not have the ability to have an education, if I did not have the ability to have a government that actually provided health care or unemployment benefits or family benefits, if I had all those string things stripped away, if I just had to survive without everything that's been given to me, how would I function? What would my life look like? And then look at what people are doing. Look how people are functioning in those environments. The fact that they're surviving and some of them are thriving is extraordinary. The work ethic, the tenacity, the ingenuity, um, the love of family and sometimes bad decisions, sometimes things that happen that you know people do when they hurt their family. You know, sometimes parents will send their kids away to the city to go and work and make an income for them, not knowing that they're selling their child into slavery. If they didn't know that's what they were doing, if they thought they were doing the right thing, then yeah, that's you can understand how that happens. Um, you know, we talk about people who are drinking dirty water, for an example. This is a bit of a side note, but I would remember, like I would talk to kids when I'd go to schools when I was working for World Vision and they go, why why don't people just boil the water that they're about to drink and so they don't drink dirty water and don't get sick? And I go, that's a really great question. How did you learn to boil water if it was dirty? How did you learn that? Oh, well, uh, I learned it from my parents. Okay, fair enough. Where did they learn that? Uh, I guess they learned it from school. Excellent. If your parents never went to school, <laughs> if you never went to school, you wouldn't know that. And so it's just trying to get to a place where we're not taking for granted what we know is just, that's just knowledge. Everybody knows that. Um, so that's a roundabout way, Marcus, of kind of describing a perspective, I think. If we could shift the perspective of uh, our world, the developed world, and go, ah, not everywhere is like where we live. Sure, we don't live in a perfect place, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, but if we could actually just have a perspective shift of, wow, that could be us. If we were living in that country, we could be living, sharing that experience. Um, what can I do? How can I create a way forward for these people taking on a sense of responsibility of, you know, I've been gifted with this life. How do I do something positive with that? What would you say to people who are listening to this and are interested in getting into the field of international development and aid? So there'd be three things. Um, firstly, find a way to become uncomfortable. Because I think that's a real challenge for us. We, we can sit in this in this country and go, oh, yeah, I really want to get involved in international development. I really want to make a, a difference. Um, and a lot of things that people will discover in that journey is uncomfortable, the complexity of development, the reality of poverty. So I'd suggest become uncomfortable by learning about our world, by learning about development, by learning about... Um, the journey of development, where it's gone well, where it's gone horribly wrong, uh, because that's really important. The greatest challenge I think we find when we're looking at developing countries is making the same mistakes that we've already made. You know, I see churches sometimes, but I see other organisations starting up and going, we're, our mandate is to end poverty in this particular area. We're going to fix it. And they go in and do the same thing that somebody else did 20 years ago and make the same mistakes 
there's a lot of knowledge out there. So um, learn about that. Become uncomfortable. Challenge yourself. Uh, shift yourself. Find an organization. This is number two. Find an organization to connect with. There are lots of organizations out there, and um, the beauty of that is that you can find something that really aligns with your values, uh, really aligns with how you want to see the world impacted and, and the method that that's involved in, and connect with that organization at any level, whether it could just be going to an event or just meeting with the staff or going and volunteering, anything. You know, A lot of organizations don't have the capacity to have you come on as a full-time volunteer and do a thing, but at least connecting with that organization at some level is a really good starting point because over time, things happen, things change, organizations grow, people move on. And if you are volunteering, if you've been around, connected with that organization for a while, you're going to be in a box seat to go, hey, cool, do you want to do, you want to do this job now? And so it's not about starting big and being the manager of that organization it's just starting and connecting and then over time you can actually really make an impact the third thing is um and this is uh, another quote huh I, I do like quotes um i can't remember who the guy is he's a leadership guy but he talks about you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with so find people who are in the field that you care about who are further along than you and just find a way to spend as much time as you possibly can with them. Now, that could be a challenge because they're busy people, but find a way to do that, whether that is even just reading stuff that they've written, but find a way because what they do, what they think, uh, how they approach the world will rub off on you. If you are surrounding yourself with people who don't care about international development, who don't care about what you care about, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose your passion for it because you're not surrounding yourself with the people who care like you care. Um, so, yeah, search for those people that are further ahead than you and just get around them, whatever that looks like. Where can people go to find out more about Opportunity International? Yeah, so our website's the best place, opportunity.org.au. It gives you an overview of us as an organisation. There's some reports there of what we're doing in India and Indonesia. We have, I think, over 6 million clients in those areas of the world at the moment, which sounds like a massive number. And it is, um, you know, average family size of five. So that's like 30 million people that we're currently impacting. But there's a lot of work to go. Um, but it is uh, areas of uh, highlighting on that website about microfinance. We're doing some stuff in health. Um, we're doing some stuff in um, domestic violence in India. We're doing some stuff in uh, human trafficking as well. So, um, yeah, check out our website. Find out more about us. Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to me, then they absolutely can do that as well. My details are on the website. So happy to chat with anyone. Thank you for listening to the episode today of Voices Unheard. Once again, this episode is not sponsored by anyone. This is my own creative project to help showcase the work of organizations around the world. However, I do ask that you help out this little podcast by sharing it with someone who you think would find it fascinating and inspiring. Try to think of two people who would enjoy it. Lastly, thank you to Kyron for his time to share his experience with Opportunity International. Please check out opportunity.org.au and donate if you've been inspired by their work. If you'd like to write to me, you can do so through marcuswongmedia at gmail.com or through my website, marcuswong.net. Thank you for listening to today's episode. See you next time. <laughs>